welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. It is a privilege to be here. Um, I know you don't know anything about me, but what I find fascinating about the life we all choose to lead is that we have an instant common denominator, and that is this living God who has drawn me to himself, who has drawn you to him, and because of that, we get to like hang out together. I think that's mind-blowing, and it far exceeds any sense of community that the world is trying to get us to connect to. The community the world says is based on uh, commonality, sameness, same hobbies, same gender, same whatever. The, the fellowship that Jesus invites us into is difference. That it doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, what our story is or what it's not, because we're united to this central figure, we're brothers and sisters. And the more I think about that, the more I'm amazed by it. Um, and because of that, I, I'm honoured to be here just to get to share with you um, some of these things that the, that same God has deposited in me, but particularly what I feel he has deposited in me for you. So in light of that, I am just going to pray. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you that you are an incredible God, that you hovered over the chaos of the deep, that you spoke things into being, that you are the creator Holy Spirit, I thank you that you gave birth to this church and everyone who's in it. I thank you that you called them to this time, to this place, with specific mandate. But I thank you first and foremost that calling is to know you and be known by you. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you please be released this morning to do a work only you can do? Ask and pray your spirit of revelation would come. Open eyes and ears to the mysteries of who you are and the gifts that you're wanting to bring. In the power of Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start this morning um, with a quote from Augustine. The more I come across this quote and the more I think about it, the more it, I don't know, it washes over me and awakens something. Uh, So I'll just read it to you and um, invite you not to take it at face value. I've got Jason doing my slides. Thank you, Jason. Um, He says this, Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he does not know what I'm talking about. I don't know whether Augustine is talking about being in love. I'm not entirely sure. There's a part of me that doesn't really fully understand it. (laughs) But what it speaks to within me is this sense of our senses. That you can have two people sitting side by side same circumstances, same environment. And yet what is going on within them could be poles apart. One could be hot, hungry, thirsty, that palpable sense of something beckoning them and inviting them forward. And another person is just not there. It's hard being that other person. feels like you're on the other side watching and spectating 
this reaction, this life, this passion that is oozing out in, in somebody near you can evoke a sense of feeling left out, indifference, sometimes bitterness, and sometimes you can be so cold you don't even care. I think of this passage when I think about the life of church. Within church life, you will have all sorts of things going on within people. And sometimes I'm that, I know what you mean, person. And sometimes I'm the, whatever. I think to err is to be human, as the saying goes. But either way, I know deep down, and I know it's true in you no matter how real that sense is, that you and I know we are wired for something more. And that there has to be a story better than this. From Australia, uh, we've spent the week here doing a variety of things and uh, some of my colleagues went down um, the Hollywood Boulevard yesterday. Hands up if you've been. Does it, is that only what tourists do? That's usually what happens. <laughs> and of course, when you're in Melbourne, America is this, wow, we grew up on Disneyland, grew up on Hollywood, like this is all this stuff. And so in my heart and mind, I can conjure up what I want America to be. It can awaken something within me that I'm desperate for. And then I spoke to the guys this morning. I said, oh, what did you do yesterday? So I went down Hollywood Boulevard. And I said, how was it? <laughs> they said, I, I say this in all the right ways and with gratitude. But I was astounded at the emptiness. And then I was overcome by a grief, genuine grief, for the celebrities, for that culture, for that world, because it's all they've got. That's their biggest story. I need something bigger. And I know you need something bigger. And I know that the the Lord of the universe is wanting to awaken that in a new way in this generation. And I believe it with all my heart. I'm not saying it because I'm here. Maybe I'm sent here to tell you this. He wants it for you and he wants it for this church. And so in light of that, thinking of the Augustine quote, being hot or being cold, we're talking about our senses. And so I just want to ask a question. Hands up if you would prefer to be deaf or blind. So hands up if you would prefer to be deaf. Mm, Yeah, I think I would too. Hands up if you would prefer to be blind. Okay, I'm going to ask one of you to tell me why, because I find that one rare. Jason, why would you prefer to be blind? Yeah. When you see with your eyes, the interpretation of whatever's going on is instantly given to you. With your ears, you're interpreting what you're hearing and it sparks and awakens your mind. I think that's why a movie is never as good as a book. When you're reading a book, you're engaging with it and you're participating with it. I had a girl at our church um, and I was asking her over coffee one day, would she prefer to be deaf or blind? And she said, oh, no, I'd way I'd to prefer to be blind. And again, because it's not the normal answer, I said, why? She goes, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. To be blind is, I've just got this. It's a fair answer. I want to um, just share with you a passage from Isaiah 6. And this is a passage uh, that is well-known. And I find very confusing. And um, Jason's just going to put it up there. It's Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. 
And God has this, Isaiah has this encounter with God, with the fullness of his glory. And this is what the Lord says to him. He says, go and say to the people, listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts and turn to me for healing. What? I'm so confused by this passage. I've been my whole life. And then I discover you get into the New Testament and this same passage is in Matthew. It's in Mark. It's in Luke. It's in John. It's in Acts. One prophecy in the Old Testament that is throughout the fullness of the Gospels, Acts often called the fifth Gospel, must be pretty important. Jesus refers to it. The disciples refer to it. Have eyes but not see, ears but not hear. Otherwise, they would turn to me and I would heal them. I find this so contrary to my understanding of God's heart because I know his desire is to heal us, right? Um, So I did what I'm going to encourage you to do if you ever have a question around who God is, his character, and in particular a biblical text, find out what it's about. Why? Why is that passage there? And why is that passage right through um, all five Gospels? When you look at the background to this, you realise that Israel has been on this story where God has called them out of Egypt, out of a place of captivity, out of a place of myth and a place of illusion, but a place that kept them as slaves. And through a divine act, he frees them and calls them and sets them apart. He doesn't choose them because they're special. They're special because he chose them. And so we have this nation of Israel, which still exists today, is this teeny tiny piece of land in the middle of the earth, which is so tiny, it's a third the size of Tasmania, which is going to mean nothing to you because you're not Australian. But basically, Tasmania is this tiny island at the bottom of the country, last landmass before Antarctica, and we all laugh at it because it's little. And I, I went to Israel uh, last April, huge thing for me, to discover that it is a third the size of Tassie. That is tiny, it's tiny. And yet it is the most fought over piece of land on this earth. Why is it the most fought over place of land? Because the Lord has called that nation and he called them way back out of Egypt. They're special because he chose them. He didn't choose them because they're special and they go on this journey and the whole thing that God says to them, I am your God and you will be my people and I am going to do this thing through you and you're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to show them a whole other way. And as we know in the story, instead of them giving witness to the nations, the nations witness to them and they want to be like them. They want to put on their clothes. They want to talk like them. They want to walk like them. And the whole time there's this living God over here going, no, 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 I'm your God. Let me be your God. Please let me be your God. I want to do stuff. I want to say stuff. I want to release stuff. And I want to do stuff through the nations and bring light to the darkness and light to the blind through you. But instead they're like... No, we want this. We want a king like them. We want a life like them. We want a language like them. We want a culture like them. And that story has just gone round and around and around as the generations go by. But the whole time, including today, you have this God who's the only living God looking for a people, a remnant that will come over here. 
And so this passage is actually about idols. Choosing something other than God to actually shape life around. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word idols. I've got it up on the screen. Some people feel like, yeah, uh, it could be a distant concept. It could be like, yeah, I know what that means because it's been part of my life story. I'm not sure. All I know is, is that they're real. And idols are things that are central to your heart. Whatever is in the centre of your heart is your God. Uppercase G or lowercase G. Scholar called G.K. Bill uh, defines idols by saying that they are whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make God and idol. And idol, and Luther, what your heart clings to or relies upon for ultimate security. Trust, security, heart. Leslie Newbegin would later say that your religion is not what you believe. It's what shapes your behaviour. So this is not a mind thing. (laughs) This is a heart. And what Jesus is saying in Isaiah, which he then repeats throughout all the Gospels, is you're going to become whatever you worship. And whatever you worship, you will become. Psalm 115, I'll get that up for you. It's also repeated word for word in Psalm 135. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Idols look like they have eyes but they can't see. And they look like they have ears, but they can't hear. And they look like they've got mouths, but they can't speak. If I was to literally bow before a statue idol, I would be bowing before something that was dead. And in orientating my life around that statue or idol, the scriptures are saying, I too will become dead. Ever seen, but not seen. Hearing, but not hearing. Just as they're mute, I become mute. We become what we worship. Jeremiah 2, another prophet, passionate about idols, talks about this and he he says, you've got broken cisterns. Why why are you looking for broken vessels to hold the water? Because the water's just going to leak out. And in the message version, Eugene Peterson says, "They, they chased emptiness and became empty. And I think my colleagues looking at Hollywood Boulevard Yesterday, that's what they were experiencing. Is acting wrong? No way. Is the entertainment industry wrong? No way. And if they say, no way. It's got an issue of posture and place. With idols, the best way I've been able to understand it is imagine I've got a line here. Above the line is the creator. Never been created, but creates. And what's above the line is what is to be worshipped. What is below the line are the things the creator creates and they're to be stewarded. Vocation, family, hobbies, 
basketball, acting, education, money, sex. Given as good gifts by the creator to be stewarded by his image bearers and he loves them and he says it is good. The issue creeps in when we take what is created and we put it above the line. So we can read this stuff and go, oh, God's so mean. He just wants us to read the Bible all day. <laughs> no way. He is so full of life and colour and vigour and exuberance. He just knows the best way to live. He knows if you orientate your life around that stuff, it's just going to leave you empty. He does not want you empty. St. Ignatius says that the glory of God is man fully alive. God's glory and your life are intrinsically linked. The glory of God is man fully alive. So in the Old Testament, idols were literally statues and they were designed to be images of another God. And the people knew that those images weren't really the God, but they were a reflection of the God. This is starting to sound potentially familiar. In Genesis 1, you have God create, creating man in his image. They weren't to be the God, they were designed to reflect the God. And instantly from our first chapter of our story, we have a counter-narrative to what is happening to the other nations. And the Lord says, you'll have no images, do not carve any images before me. Do you know why? Because he already had thousands of images on the earth designed to reflect who he is. And so you will reflect whatever you worship. For good or for bad, you will reflect whatever you worship. In the New Testament, the predominant version of idols was, lo and behold, religion, tradition. Oh, the irony. And Jesus just goes to town frustrated at the religious people's inability to see him. He quotes at one stage, you cannot see me for who I am because you're so caught up in your own commandments your own tradition, because I'm completely different to that. They didn't like it, so they killed him. And we're lucky he did because of what he did. He can turn everything around all over again and start anew. But in the Old Testament, it's statues. In the New Testament, it is religion. What is it today? If we're talking about where your heart finds its trust and its security, what I reckon there's going to be heaps. <laughs> As Kelvin said, the heart is an idol factory. Like, it just keeps producing them. Yell out some for me. What are some of the idols today? Money, Money definitely. Self, Self absolutely. Career. Career, definitely. Internet. Internet, absolutely. Image. Okay, you get a star. <laughs> there are so many, many idols. And um, just to the next slide, thanks. But the one I feel the Lord is wanting to go after for this church, for garden and, and the gardeners. I love it that you guys get to be called that. It's the best. Oh, I don't know what to call our people. The people. Something about image that the Lord desperately wants to minister to. I find this interesting for a number of reasons. One, because as I talked about before, we're made in his image, designed to reflect him, participate with him. 
The other reason I find this very interesting is that the same Hebrew word for idol, selim, is the same Hebrew word for image, selim. There's something intrinsic towards any idol that has got image at its centre. So when I say image, I'm not sure what hits you. It could be uh, literally your self-image or the images of others. It could be the fact we like to see things and none of us like to read anymore. I'm just going to use it as a, a generic statement. But what I do want to show you is um, an exhibition run by a, um, an artist from the Netherlands, Eric Kessel. And he ran an exhibition and he printed tangibly um, a day's worth of photos that were uploaded to a very popular uh, social media thing. It's called Flickr. Just get you to take us through them, please, Jason. And what he did was um, Flickr is basically Instagram for photographers. Um, so it's for the real photographers, not the ones that use a toaster filter. And it's quite popular. And uh, my brother is on it as a photographer. Like I said, it, they love it. And one million pictures get op- uploaded per 24 hours. Okay. We don't feel that, A, because you don't look at Flickr. But secondly, the internet <laughs> is this nefarious, weird atmosphere where nothing's tangible, right? So we don't feel the full brunt of it. And so he wanted to make tangible what is intangible to show us what is going on. And so I'll let you take us through, oh, you already have, thank you, Jason. And what we see here is just one day's worth. It's a million photos. And that's when I realised that's why he didn't do Instagram. If he did Instagram, he'd need 18 more art centres with the same amount of space to fill in the amount of photos that are uploaded per 24 hours. And the article in this exhibition, he talks about why he did it. And he essentially says, I want people to know how saturated they are by the lives of others that they're not experiencing. I want people to know the difference between reality and illusion. I want people to know why they feel overwhelmed. I want people to know how much the shouting, this is my paraphrase, the shouting uh, screams of others saying, look at me, are in their face. Whilst every single human is in the same boat going, look at me, look at me. And no one knows really who they are. We'll go to the next photo. We have um, here a very famous concept called the selfie, uh, made famous by someone from LA, P.S., so you guys are famous. Paris Hilton has actually got, you probably know this because she's your neighbour, probably down the road somewhere. <laughs> she has got a picture of herself made up from all her selfies. I don't know what to say about that. We'll just leave it, just leave it hanging there. But you are what you worship. Um, this is actually a beautiful selfie though. And when I came across this, I was like, it's probably the nicest selfie I've ever seen. It's a casual blue eyes, natural beauty, um, just this look caught in the moment. You read the story behind it. Uh, This is a journalist who wanted to go on a bit of an experiment around the world of images and said, in all honesty, this could look like a casual shot, but it took 20 takes 
to get this exact shot. By the end of those 20 takes, she'd been staring into the sun for so long she had a horrible headache and had to go home and rest for three hours. Living? Probably not. Striving? Absent to what her afternoon could have been but became headache-driven? Probably the best way I can communicate what I'm trying my best to communicate is this next picture. Thanks, Jason. Jacques Ellul, he's a, a French philosopher. I think he's dead now. He talks about, in the 70s, he wrote this having no idea where culture would go. He said, the more we are orientated around the image, the more we lose our imagination. The more we focus on what is external, not what is real. Um, And the more we become a people of absence. This picture probably speaks my whole sermon, so I did toy with... Let's just look at this for half an hour. (laughs) Uh, Because I love whales. I would dearly love to swim with them. I think I would. If it happened in real time, I'd probably be petrified. Uh, So being here um, as a tourist, yesterday I went whale watching. Hands up if you've been. Oh, you did? Did you go yesterday? Did you see any? Well, this is what I saw. (laughs) Three hours. There were some um, better images than that, but in all honesty, and I'm not trying to be trite or or smug, but I went, I'm not going to take a photo because I want to see it. I want, when that tail emerges, which it did, I want it etched on my soul. I don't want something separating me from that. So what images have done is created this whole culture of absence. And if images are at the centre of our world and we become what we worship, what, what have we become? We become the viewer and the viewed. We become the spectator. And so coming back to Augustine's quote, where give me a man in love, he knows what I mean. Give me a man who is thirsty, who is hungry, who's in the desert, longing for the eternal country, he knows what I mean. We don't relate to it because we're here viewing it happening to others. Our soul wants it. Everything within the entirety of our being longs for it. But we don't know how to get it and, and we're watching it. In a book called Voltaire's Bastards, which I want to read the rest of the book because I'm fascinated by the title, a guy um, says, says this, John Ralston Saul. Now the death of God, which in case you didn't know, culture has declared that, combined with the perfection of the image, has brought to us a whole new state of expectation. We are the image. We are the viewer and the viewed. 
There is no other distracting presence. And that image has all the godly powers. It kills at will, it kills effortlessly, it dispenses morality, it judges endlessly. The electronic image is man as God, and the ritual involved leads us not to a mysterious, holy trinity, but back to ourselves. Worse still, any idol, name an idol, and the same will be true. But in this case, the image there is very much those who are acceptable and those who are not. With any idol, there is always an in and there is always an out. There are always those who have it, there are those who don't. There's all these social hierarchies that come down. And argue your Instagram feed and the likes that are on your Facebook page. We say no, but the dopamine that goes through our brain when we get them tells us another story. We are the viewer and the viewed. What I like about this quote is the part in there that says there is no distracting presence. I'm reminded of Adam and Eve had the fullness of God's presence within them and they were completely seduced and deceived by a really appealing offer that they would be like God the irony being they already were, because they were in his image. But this great deception set in, which was, no, 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 you could be God. And they, they bought the lie. Instantly, they knew they were naked. And they hid. The divine presence comes into the garden. You could almost hear his footsteps, looking for them, calling their name, but they were carved in shame and they were hidden. And I find this concept of shame very fascinating. Jeremiah in Romans talks about idols and it says that um, we exchanged the glory of God, so we had the glory of God, which is why they didn't know they were naked, which I find fascinating because I don't know about you, but I always know when I'm naked. They didn't because they were clothed in the fullness of God's glory. There was nothing in there to make them vulnerable and they exchanged that glory for a lie. Not for another truth, for a lie. Other passages throughout the prophets talk about they exchanged the glory for images slash idols. But Hosea 4 says they exchanged the glory of God. They gave that up for shame. I just sat with that verse for ages, just mesmerised by the, reper- the repercussions of exchanging the glory of God for shame. I'm a late adopter, but I've just been getting into Brene Brown, hands up. She's one of your countrymen, so I assume you know who she is. Very famous for her um, social research and her commentary, and she says that with all the research that she's done, she's researched for 10 years, what is it that drives humans? So the thing that drives humans is connection. And then she discovers what is the the secret or the key to getting connection. She then discovers it's a vulnerability. This resulted her having a breakdown, full-blown breakdown, because this confronted the very idea of herself that she had constructed. 
She was a social researcher, she was academic, she was very well known in her field and she was very controlled and measured and could dictate her life. She was the opposite of vulnerability. But as an academic, she couldn't deny the research. And this led to a breakdown of sorts because it got under the facade and hit the heart. I'm reading one of her books at the moment, I'm like, she's got to be Christian. Like, this is just it's too much Christian talk. And I Googled her, I just Googled Brene Brown Faith. The first thing that came up was a six-minute testimonial about that finding and that discovery that vulnerability is what grants us the very thing we're most hungry for, took her back to church. And then she talks about Jesus, the most vulnerable being in the universe. And it's refreshing and it's beautiful. I encourage you to Google it later, not now. But then she discovers, okay, so if, connect, um, if connection is the thing we want and the thing that gives us connection is vulnerability, then what stops us from being vulnerable? Shame. Number one thing that stops us from being vulnerable is shame. And when I first read this, I went, no, not me. And then she defines shame. And she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and unworthy of acceptance and belonging. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. She goes on to say, shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we are not good enough. And so whether you are a workaholic or an alcoholic or anything in between. Her argument is that if you're human, it's shame that's driving that. Whether you're super rich or super poor, the worldview that is dictating what you do and how you do it is shame. Why? Because the human condition is we exchanged the glory of God for shame. It's the clothes we wear. And we spend all our di- all our there goes the Aussie accent, all our days, all our days hiding from the fact that that's actually what's at the core of how we feel and where we are. Now what God does, and this is through the whole entire Old Testament, um, and it's true in my life, I don't have time to tell you the stories, I'm assuming it's true in yours, um, and if it's not yet it will be is that idols always fail. Whether it's trying to climb the top of the ladder and getting there and realising there's nothing there. Or having your name etched in a star on Hollywood Boulevard, realising it doesn't satisfy the deepest ache in your soul. Whether it be an emotional attachment or a codependency to someone who's meant to be your saviour, but they end up as human as anybody else and drastically disappoint you. Or whether it be money. We had an excellent, beautiful testimony this morning from Tom as he shared his, his addiction to money and what that did and it forced him to his knees and it totally failed and he lost everything and actually that's when he found God. If you don't know Tom, please get to hear his story. It's beautiful. But they always, without exception, fail. And in God's grace, he will bring you to a point where you get to see that for yourself. When that happens, it's awfully confronting because your whole world falls apart. Why? Because that's where your security and your trust and your hope lay. But when that happens, 
the real God gets to turn up and prove that he's real, that he's on the move, that he knows you, that he is real. Isaiah 41, 3 to 43, we clearly don't have time now, but please go home and read these chapters. They are exquisite. They are a glorious understatement of the reality of who God is compared to idols. And essentially, it's like a court case where God is saying, okay, who's going to prove true? And you, Israel, have to choose. Is it me or is it the idols? And within this, he has this expose on the idols and he basically reveals and proves that they're a delusion, they are a fantasy. In 41.29, he says, look at all of them. They're a delusion, their works are non-existent and their images are wind and emptiness. And then the atmosphere changes. And chapter 42 goes on to say, but this is my servant, capital S, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. Footnote, he doesn't have to prove himself. Or extra footnote, I don't think he has Instagram. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smouldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged. Until he has established justice on the earth and the islands will wait for his instruction. I would love to continue to read the rest of that. But I invite you to go home and read it. But he essentially is talking about a servant who is going to come, who is going to replace the role of the servant Israel that miserably failed. They just simply couldn't do it. Time and time again, God calls them, they fail. He calls them again, they fail. And one of his most famous sayings throughout the Old Testament is, return to me, please return, 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 I will return to you, please. And they try and then they just default. And so God sends this servant, he creates a new one. (laughs) That's how passionate he is. Isaiah 41 goes on to say, he, it's not like he's some trite, nice cliche. Just going, do you want to come? No, he's a warrior that prepares for battle. Like a warrior prepares for battle, so is he in his pursuit after you. And as a woman gives birth in labour, so the Lord cries out for you. I've done neither, but I understand that that means zealous. Intent. You give your all. He gives his all. And so he sends this servant. And we know the story, but sometimes we know it so much we forget to believe it. And in knowing this story, we know that this servant comes and he dies on the cross and he takes all of that shame and he rises again to defeat the powers and the principalities and he's now at work to create newness. This is our story. But if your true religion is not what you believe, but what shapes your behaviour, Maybe our senses haven't fully awoken to it. And there's nothing in that that's like, that's because you've all got a bunch of idols, so of course you're deaf. To have idols is to be human. But so passionate is his creator for you that he actually does on your behalf what you cannot do for yourself. In his book, The Pursuing God, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler speaks of a story. Well, it's not a story. It was a vision that he'd had. And in this vision, there was a canvas. 
and on the canvas it had like a, a beautiful ornate gold frame. And he was watching his creator paint on this canvas and it was beautiful. And the creator would stand back and, and say it was good. So it was like a creation story. But then he noticed that in the centre of the picture, this really yucky, black, mouldy, toxic substance entered the middle of the picture and started to just multiply. And you can imagine it, with little networks and tentacles covering the canvas. And he was struck by the awfulness of that, the yuck. So he's like, what's going to happen? What's the creator going to do? And so then before he knows it, the creator, the artist actually gets into the painting and he's now in the centre of the painting and so Joshua in this vision is watching going, what's, gonna, what's the black stuff going to do? And the black stuff ends up entering the whole entire being of the artist and the black stuff is consumed right in the centre of his heart and the picture is referred to lightness and beauty and colour and wonder and mystery so then he's like, well, that's nice. That's very much Jesus. And then he half expected him to step out again and watch it. What struck him was that the artist, being Jesus, stays in the painting with all the blackness absorbed into himself, all the disobedience absorbed into himself, all of the shame absorbed into himself, all of the lies, the death, the evil, the destruction absorbed into himself. And then he is the centre of the masterpiece. Your following of Christ has got nothing to do with getting it all right. Your following of Christ isn't even necessarily about not having any idols. Your following of Christ is a full recognition you can't do it. You can't be good enough. But that he wants to enter into the centre of your story and actually absorb it all and then infuse you with his life as the perfect image. And so when you look at the story of image in the Bible, it's mentioned in Genesis 1 and 5 and 9 and then it stops throughout the whole entire Old Testament, into the New, it doesn't mention the image bearers anymore until we get to the perfect image, being Jesus Christ himself. And then it's not mentioned again about you and I being made in the image of God. What we have instead is the church collectively being the living image of his body. So this isn't about my calling or your calling or my place in church or my place in the world. No, this is about our place in it together, in this tapestry and in this painting and this picture of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth that this creator isn't just telling us about but he's actually doing in real time. That's why he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen to what I'm saying. And so as I've been spending some time with you guys and was here last week, I had this beautiful image, and I'm please don't think more highly of me than you ought. It doesn't happen when I'm in Australia. It only happens when I'm overseas. I'm not even looking for them, and they appear. And it was an image of a maypole. I'm going to say that in this American accent, a maypole. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Like, it's this really tall pole, and it has ribbons, beautiful colours and ribbons coming out from it. And then each person takes a ribbon, and they dance. And as they dance, a pattern forms down the maypole. 
Last week I was here and uh, had that, and the maypole, the pattern was about a third of the way down and it was beautiful. I can't explain what I saw, but it was textured, it was beautiful. And in the picture I had um, this picture of Jesus and I couldn't see his face, so annoying, I never see his face. I saw his back and he was just looking at it, pausing in gratitude at what had happened and what had been done before. And then I saw an image of some other gardeners. It could be leaders, it could be others. I'm not entirely sure, but there was a bunch of people who came and sat next to Jesus or stood next to him and just watched. And then I'm like, God, why is it only a third of the way down? And why are you waiting? Because <laughs> there's all these ribbons for others to pick up. And there's people who are watching and viewing and spectating what's happening. But I cannot carry out my purposes in garden without every person picking up their piece. With idols, there's always a hierarchy. Who's in, who's out. As image bearers, as his church, we are all equal. There is no in, there is no out. It's not about who's leading and who's not leading. It's all about where are the people who have allowed this Jesus to enter their picture and absorb it all and take the shame for you so he can do something new. And so I feel like there have been people who have been restless and they don't necessarily want to move forward, but they definitely don't want to go backwards. So they're kind of stuck in this transition. There are those who have been watching and saying, if only I could be part of that. And the Lord's saying, you can. Like this isn't an us and them thing, it's us. There are those who are racked with guilt and shame and condemnation. I am not good enough. I did this, I did this, I did this, I'm not this, whatever it is. And he goes, I know, that's why I've done it for you. Such is his kindness, such is his love, and such is his zeal. But don't let this picture leave you. The maypole ribbons are sitting there. I didn't get the rest of the picture. The choice is up to the gardeners, what they want to make this. It's not a given what God has got for this church. It's dependent on each person going, yes, yes. And so as the worship team comes up, I, I want to just end with this whole cry to God who says, return to me. Just come. It doesn't matter. Just, just come, return In our Christian world, we use the word repentance, which I find very off-putting, but, (laughs) or condemning, but it's not. The word repentance simply means you're walking this way, just turn around and go this way instead. That's just what it means. It's taking a bout turn. Instead of looking at that, let's look at him and let him create the masterpiece he wants to make, which will be different to what you're expecting, but always better. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.